If you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to Matthew's Gospel tonight. I know our bulletin um, has Lord's Day 52 at the head, and we are looking at uh, that great <clears throat> uh, final petition of the Lord's Prayer that is touched on in the Heidelberg Catechism, question 127, but this evening we're going to look at God's Word from Matthew chapter 6, and I'd like for us to look at verses 7 through 15, though we're only going to focus this evening on verse 13, uh, verse 7 through 15, as we consider God's Word together. And here in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus uh, uncovering the danger of hypocrisy at every turn, and really how prevalent hypocrisy can be among those who um, are religious, those who profess faith in him, now um, gives more pointed application to his disciples about their prayer life. And he says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from, and perhaps it ought to read, the evil one. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God endures forever. Well, um, there is a little work that Martin Luther wrote in 1535. He wrote it for his barber, Peter the Barber, who is one of those interesting figures in church history. Peter the Barber um, is not remembered for his great theological prowess, neither is he remembered for leading a movement to uh, free oppression or to, uh, to promote charity. Rather, he is remembered for being Martin Luther's barber. And in all the pictures that we have, he seems like he was a pretty straightforward guy, bowl cut for Luther. He probably invented the bowl cut. But Peter the barber on one occasion, and having such great access to Martin Luther, who was very well known and very well loved, asked him if he would teach him how to pray. And Luther, and this is one of those really sweet uh, illustrations from church history, Luther took time out of his busy schedule at the university and in all the work that he was undertaking to write a very short little work for Peter the Barber in which he gives him general instructions on prayer and then he gives him an exposition on the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, and the Apostles' Creed. And it's a really marvelous little work, but what's interesting about this work in specific is that Peter the Barber will go on and he will make the error of a lifetime. One night he is... Uh, drinking heavily with his son-in-law, and his son-in-law is boasting about uh, being uh, immune to the sword and how he escaped all these battles and how um, no one could kill him with a sword. And Peter the barber, having drunk too much that night, took his sword and thrust it at his son-in-law when his son-in-law wasn't uh, looking, and he killed his son-in-law. And he was exiled subsequently because of this, because Martin Luther actually went to bat for Peter the Barber so that he didn't fall under the death penalty. Now, I tell you that story because I wonder, as Peter the Barber took that little 
book that Luther had given him when he was exiled, if he ever reflected on what Luther had written about this final petition in the Lord's Prayer and how he wished he had prayed it more frequently. Luther wrote in that little work to his barber on the phrase, lead us not into temptation. He said, when we pray, say, dear Lord God, Father, keep us brave and alert, fervent and eager in the use of your word and service, lest we become complacent lazy or sluggish, as if we had need of nothing more, so that when the fierce devil suddenly is able to catch us by surprise, deprive us of your precious word, or create dissension and sex among us, or otherwise lead us into sin and shame, both spiritually and and physically, grant us wisdom and power through your spirit that as good soldiers we can conquer after resisting him. Amen. Um, It's interesting that Uh, Luther is said to have been a man of three hours of prayer a day. And I've often wondered how much of Luther's prayers were saturated with the request, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, when we think about our prayer life, oftentimes, sadly, that is not a prayer that is frequently on our minds and hearts. Um, It's interesting that the Lord Jesus should end Uh, this model of prayer, this pattern of prayer that he gives his disciples with that final petition, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, tonight I want, want us to consider this just in two parts. First, I want us to consider the petition itself, and then I want us to consider what it is that makes this petition work, how it is that God leads us out of temptation and delivers us from the evil one. And notice that in the order in which Jesus gives this, he has given us that great division in the Lord's Prayer. First, he's told us about those petitions we should pray with respect to who God is, his name, his glory, his kingdom, his will being done, and then those three basic categories for what we need in life. Daily bread, forgiveness of sins, deliverance from the evil one. Isn't that marvelous? In essence, Jesus is saying there are three things you need in life after first recognizing your relationship before God, who he is, and that this is his world and what he's doing in this world. And those three things are very simply daily provision, the forgiveness of sins, and deliverance from evil. Um, Now, with respect, notice verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There is a very close connection between the last two petitions in the Lord's Prayer. Phil Riken says this, he says, we confess our sins because we keep on sinning. We need to listen very carefully, children especially, we confess our sins Because we keep on sinning, but it would be better if we did not sin at all. That's that's what Jesus is teaching us, that we will continue to confess our sins because we will continue to sin in this life, no matter how much progress we've made in the Christian life, but it would be better if we did not sin. You know, I've often thought that Those two things are really the heart of a true Christian in many respects. Feeling and knowing that I need my sins forgiven on a daily basis and feeling and wanting to be delivered from the power of sin so that I do not go on sinning. Those are are the two internal marks 
that I can gauge within me? Do I feel and know that I need my sins forgiven? And do I feel and long for deliverance from the power of sin so that I don't keep on giving in to temptation and giving in to that sin, as the writer of Hebrews says, that so easily weighs us down? But as we look at this petition together and we consider this final petition, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, there are two problems that arise. It's actually quite a difficult petition in the way in which it's worded. Because uh, someone could mistakenly read this and they could, they could think, well, then I'm asking God not to lead me into temptation because God is the one who leads us into temptation. And, and James tells us very clearly that God doesn't tempt anyone with evil, neither indeed can he be tempted, and each one is tempted when he or she are drawn away by their own desires and enticed, and when sin, when desire conceives, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death, and, and so James makes it abundantly clear that God doesn't tempt his people, that God never puts a stumbling block in our way. Um, so how is it then that we... We pray, lead us not into temptation. And some people have tried to uh, turn the, the word that Jesus is use, uses here and, and to say, well, it should be translated, lead us not into trials. Because the same word for tempting is the same word that's used to, for trying. And God does try us. He does bring trials into our lives. God is sovereign over every trial and hardship and difficulty that he brings into our lives. And as we know, if we know our theology of temptation, we know that the evil one comes in and he turns the trial into a temptation, as it was with our first parents, right? God put the trial in front of Adam and Eve, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and Satan came in and turned the trial into a temptation. Um, There is a close connection between every temptation and every trial, God brings trials. He does not bring temptations. And, and some theologians have sought to say what we're praying for is that God deliver us from trials because we know that he doesn't tempt. I don't think that's what Jesus is teaching. Because James also tells us at the beginning of James in chapter 1, count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience and patience, character and character hope. And How do we become complete and whole people? It's based on God bringing those trials. And remember, Peter will say in 1 Peter 1 um, that that if it's necessary, if, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that God sees fit that there are times in our lives and we find them painful and fiery and difficult. Um, And yet God sees a need in bringing trials into our lives so that he conforms us more to Christ. And so we would never want to be delivered from trials if God's purpose is for those trials to mature us and complete us and to make us more like Christ, no matter how much we may be weighed down under them while we're going through them. And so the question is, what here are we asking the Lord to do when we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one? Well, Um, one writer has said Jesus is encouraging an attitude, an attitude that flees from temptation. He He is acknowledging here that Christians are often beset by temptation, 
Um, Augustine, by the way, said the whole of the Christian life is one of temptation. Not just one season or one time, but really every day, every hour. The whole of the Christian life is the life of temptation. And, and, and our attitude ought to be a desire to escape from whatever temptation uh, the evil one or the world through the machinations of the evil one is, is drawing away, drawing us after. Um, Jesus is not saying, do not allow us to be tempted. He is saying that at ground zero in the Christian life is a recognition that if I am ever going to escape those temptations that come, and they will most certainly come, that they must be based on an absolute dependence, an absolute awareness of our weakness, and an absolute dependence on God. An absolute awareness of our weakness and an absolute dependence on God. You know, the Heidelberg Catechism says almost that very thing. Question 127, what is the sixth petition? After mentioning it, um, Olivianus and Ursinus say, in ourselves we are so weak that we cannot stand even for a moment. Do you feel that about yourself? Do you feel that about yourself? I want to read that again. In ourselves we are so weak that we cannot stand even for a moment. Moreover, our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh do never cease to attack us. And so we are praying, will you therefore uphold and strengthen us by the power of the Spirit so that in this spiritual war we may not go down to defeat but always firmly resist our enemies until we finally obtain the complete victory. Isn't that awesome? That the prayer is itself an acknowledgement I do not have in myself what I need to escape this temptation so that when I feel the pull of the temptation and I feel an urge to fight against it and yet I feel a draw to it, I should drop to my knees and I should say, Lord, I do not have in myself what I need to flee this temptation. Will you give me grace to do that? And as you all know, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 has that great statement, no temptation has overtaken us except as is common to man, but God is faithful, who with the temptation will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able, but will give us a way of escape that we may take it. Now, whole treaties could be written on this, have been written on this. Thomas Watson, by the way, if you want to read something really great in his exposition of the Lord's Prayer, has about 27 ways that Satan tempts us. It's very careful. (laughs) Um, When we're tired, when we're weary, when we've just done something we should have done, (laughs) Every, every possible scenario and situation and circumstance in life, we are, we are frail and vulnerable. No matter where we are, remember, we just saw this the other day in Sunday school, Jesus has instituted the Lord's Supper, and no sooner do the disciples walk out of the room that they're arguing about who's the greatest among them. I mean, Jesus just instituted the Supper. They just had the first Lord's Supper in human history with the Savior, and they're arguing about who's the greatest. We are so weak. Um, I think here also about 
um, the fact that Jesus is certainly incorporating into this petition uh, a theology of temptation and desire. There, there are both internal desires by which we are tempted, and there are external desires by which we are tempted, which really makes for a bad deal for us. So everything in me, by nature, tempts me to want to do wrong, and everything outside of me, by nature, is drawing me to do wrong. That we have a lot against us in this world. Everything within, James says, everyone's drawn away by his own desire, right? We, we don't get to just blame external circumstances when we're being tempted. We don't get to say, well, I did that because so-and-so did this to me, and I wouldn't have done that if they hadn't done this. Um, and yet we also have the external, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil. And that's very powerful. And, you know, if I could say a word to the children tonight, you will spend the rest of your life, children, learning how powerful the world is, trying to draw you away from the Savior, away from the truth, away from doing what's pleasing to God. And, and we are in the fight of our life, and we're in a fight for our life. And I think Jesus here is acknowledging that we, not him, but we, have that internal and that external, so that when he says, um, we ought to pray, lead us not into temptation, which is a litotes, because he now gives us the other side, and he says, but deliver us from the evil one. So that beyond all the temptations is the external forces at work trying to draw us away. You know, Luther was so keenly aware um, I, I find it striking how keenly aware Martin Luther was for cessationist to know how powerful the devil was and how powerfully the devil was at work trying to destroy him and stop the work that he was doing. Um, the more we are committed to serving the Lord Jesus, the more, as my dad used to say to me when I was a boy, the devil will be seeking to cut off our legs every opportunity, every chance to just cut you down. Um, There's one thing that Satan's rage cannot endure, and that is fruitful Christians who are seeking to faithfully serve Christ and hold him up before this wicked and fallen world. And so we have a dire and desperate need to be praying this prayer every day, Not one day of our life should go by that we don't pray this prayer. Not one day of our life should go by where we don't confess our sins to the Lord. Not one day of our life should go by where we're not praying everything in the Lord's prayer. And yet how vital and how necessary when we feel our own weakness and we feel our own frailty, we know that we don't have the resources in ourselves that we be crying out to the Lord that he would deliver us from temptation and from the evil one. Now, um, I think there's something marvelous here, secondly, in how the Lord tends to answer this prayer. And it's, it's something that we don't, always, we don't always consider. You know, sometimes, sometimes the Lord answers this prayer not in the way that we want him to answer it. 
Sometimes the Lord answers this prayer by allowing us to fall so that we'll see how weak we really are, so that we'll come back to him, clinging to him and crying out to him in absolute desperation for his power. You know, I think that's the point of Peter, isn't it? Satan comes and Satan asks Jesus if he can sift all the disciples. The you is plural. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you all. But I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail because Jesus knew that Peter was going to falter. He was going to stumble. I mean, think about this. One of the the chief apostles curses about not knowing Jesus at the point of the Savior's sufferings in fulfillment of redemptive history. At the point when Jesus is laying down his life on the very night when the Savior is fulfilling everything God had promised from the beginning of time, On that night, the chief apostle denies three times that he even knows him with cursing and swearing, adamant rejection of Jesus and denial. And yet, Jesus let Peter fall. He said, but I have prayed for you so that you would return to me, and when you have, you would go and strengthen your brethren. And Peter would go on to write two letters that are not as read as they ought to be in the New Testament, And in both of those letters, he speaks about the great persecutions and trials and tribulations of the brotherhood in the world because Peter had learned that we have an adversary who walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he had been subject to the powers of darkness, and he had been subject to the great attacks of the evil one. And here's the really marvelous thing. Peter had been restored by the intercession of the great high priest, Jesus Christ. Now, here's what we don't want to forget when we think about praying this prayer and what Jesus is teaching us. We don't want to forget, first of all, that Jesus himself was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Um, You know, when you feel your heart longing for things it ought not to long for, and, and... you feel the allurement and the attraction to things that you shouldn't. It could be lust, it could be money, it could be anger, it could be power, it could be anything. It could be self-righteousness. It could be wanting people to think well of you. When you start to feel that longing for those things, and yes, oftentimes out of your own heart, but sometimes from external uh, pools and temptations, we are to remember that the Savior, though he was without sin, was tempted in all ways, even as we are, and yet he resisted the temptations of the evil one as the second Adam for us, for our salvation, for our redemption, and also to sympathize with us so that he actually knows what it is to be tempted. How amazing is that? The God who cannot be tempted was tempted in the person of Jesus in every way as we are yet without sin. The God who cannot be tempted with evil in his human nature was subject to all the tempting allurements that the world and the devil had to offer him. And he overcame where our first parents failed. You know, I've often thought it was interesting John, the Apostle John in 1 John will reflect back on, I believe, the early chapters of Genesis and he'll say all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, 
the lust of the eyes and the pride of life are not of the Father, but are of the evil one. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. And those three categories are what we see in the garden with Eve. She saw that the fruit was pleasant. She perceived it to be able to make one wise and that it was good for food, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And she gave in, and then Adam gave in. And every temptation we deal with, we give in to one of those three categories. Um, And in the wilderness, Jesus is subject to all of those temptations. Satan says to him, the lust of the flesh, if you're hungry, turn these stones into bread. And the lust of the eyes, look at all the kingdoms of the world. And the pride of life, why don't you throw yourself off the temple? And he resists. And he obeys perfectly. At his weakest moment, he obeys perfectly. For us, um, he does what Adam failed to do. And he undoes what Adam did for us. And then I love, as Jesus is going to the cross, and this is one of the most beautiful thoughts in the Bible, and we heard about... um, what we might properly call the Lord's Prayer in John 17 recently. And Jesus prays there for his disciples. He prays for us. He says, Father, I do not pray that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. How can I have confidence that when I pray this prayer, God's intention is to preserve me and protect me, to keep me, And even when I fail to forgive me and restore me, it's because of what Jesus has done and what he has prayed for us. Isn't that marvelous? That behind my praying of this prayer and beyond your praying of this petition is Jesus' praying that same petition for you. So that between me and God, there is a mediator who has already prayed that the Father would keep his people from the evil one. And that means I can be confident that if my desire is not to enter into sin, and you can be confident that if your desire is not to give in to whatever temptation you're facing, that you can be confident your Savior has already prayed for you for that, and that if you are praying this petition, you are essentially echoing the prayer he has already prayed, and he is ever living to make intercession for us, And he desires that we overcome by faith in him. And he desires that we overcome by the blood that he shed at the cross. And he desires that we overcome by the word of our testimony, even when we have fiery temptations under things like persecution or the pull of the world to pull us away from Christ and away from the truth, away from our profession of faith, away from the church, that we can be confident that Jesus' desire has already been made known to the Father, and the Father has already answered the prayer of the Son. You know, why was Peter restored? Because Jesus prayed for him. Why will you make it to glory and ultimately overcome? Because Jesus has prayed that the Father would keep you from the evil one, and then he has gone to the cross to crush the head of the evil one. That's why the cross is so much more than just the place where our sins are washed away. This is why when the Apostle Paul is talking about what Jesus accomplishes in the book of Colossians, he says that when he was nailed to the tree, he disarmed 
principalities and powers, triumphing over them in it, making a public spectacle of them. So that when Jesus was nailed to the cross, the whole kingdom of darkness was being torn down and destroyed. So that no matter what accusations Satan brings against you, no matter what ways he tries to destroy you, Christ has already conquered them. Isn't that marvelous? So that it's not in my desire to want to overcome temptations where the power lies, but I can be confident when I pray for this that the power is in what Christ has already done for me. Um, I'm convinced that Satan is happy with any Bible teaching, preaching, reading, Facebook memes, Anything else, as long as it doesn't focus on the cross and Jesus' victory over him. He's okay with it all. He's okay with all the moralism. He's okay with all the Christianese. He's okay with all the, the sort of quasi-biblical self-help. He's okay with all that. I mean, he had the whole Jewish nation under his sway, under Pharisaic legalism that was biblical. He's okay with all that. The one thing Satan hates is the one thing that we love because it's the one place where he was conquered. Um, You know, I love the way the hymn writer puts this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin because the sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. You know, Satan used to, or Luther, sorry, Martin Luther used to um, respond to the devil when the devil would come and attack him and, and he, he would talk about the devil filling out a list of his sins and, and shoving it in his face and Luther would say, give me that list, I'll fill it out for you and I'll take it to the Savior. He's covered all that, that's all you've got. Um, And yet we're in a battle. We're in a very real battle. We're in a battle for our souls. It's the battle of a lifetime. We don't want to diminish the fact that Jesus has taught us that it is imperative that we make this petition a central part of our prayers in our homes when we're alone, when nobody can see what we're doing, when we're traveling, when we're in places where we're not accountable, whatever setting we find ourselves in, that we would be a people that pray, Lord, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I want to leave you with this thought. Um, John Newton wrote that great hymn. We sing it here sometimes. I ask the Lord... I used to tell our congregation in Savannah, it's one of those hymns that you're never going to find in a, you know, chipper, happy, clappy kind of setting um, where people just want feel-good music. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. And then Newton says, instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, humbled my heart and laid me low. 
Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will you pursue your worm to death? It's in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. Sometimes when we start to pray, Lord, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. He'll show us more of what's in our hearts so that we'll cling more fiercely to who he is and what he's done for us. I hope that you'll be a people. I hope that I'll be a man who prays this prayer often in dependence on the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do acknowledge our great sinfulness. Lord, how many times we have entered into temptation when we ought not. How many times we have allowed our flesh to rule and reign over us in our words and our thoughts, our affections, our actions. We pray, our Father, as you taught us to pray, Lord Jesus, that you would forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors that you would make us to sense anew tonight that we have been forgiven in the blood of Jesus. And yet also, Lord, we pray that you would lead us not into temptation, that you would deliver us from the evil one, that you would lift up a standard against the enemy when he comes in like a flood, that you would make us acutely aware when we are being tempted, both from within and from without. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you prayed that your Father would keep us and protect us from the evil one. We pray that you would make that prayer and the answer to that prayer to be evident in our lives from the oldest of us here present tonight to the youngest. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.